The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Common Grounds Coffee House, welcome back. Th- thank you for that for that very quiet wave, which picks up great on a microphone. That's that's very helpful. This is Serious Fun, a podcast on the Phoenix Studios Network here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I am Dr. Brian Carr, traditionally the host of Serious Fun, um, but as a celebration of Women's History Month, which I believe can still go well into April. Thank you very much. Um, I we are doing a special series of podcasts talking about. Uh, gender issues, w- female representation in popular culture, uh, and this is, of course, the grand finale of that of uh, th- that segment. So uh, we're very excited to be here. So thank you all for coming out. Get a nice round of applause here. All right, that picked up well. Nice. Okay. Uh, so of course, we also have to uh, say that we are on the Stitcher network, uh, and as part of that, we are obligated to thank Stitcher. So I get a great big thank you, Stitcher, from everybody. Thank you, Stitcher. Okay, great. Now that's done. All right. Um, so I'm going to turn it over. Tonight's topic is a really important one. We're going to be talking about the unsung heroes of uh, pop culture. A lot of women create amazing things. They make music. They do. They edit films. I'm just ask Marsha Lucas, who basically made Star Wars. You know, good. Um, she. Uh, there's all kinds of women who have these amazing stories, but they never really get told. That changes tonight. Um, all of our panels here are going to be talking about some women whose work they admire, who think uh, they think you should be aware of. Uh, and if you are hitting up Wikipedia or Google after this, then we've done our job. So uh, that's going to be what we're going to talking about. So again, I want to introduce tonight's panel. Um, starting at the left, we have Dr. Rebecca Nesbitt from English. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nesbitt. Uh, we have Dr. Chris Coulter from uh, DJS. Hello. And uh, rounding out, uh, the uh, first ever guest on Serious Fun, by the way, for those of you keeping track, uh, making her second appearance on the show, uh, music professor, uh, Dr. Mich- uh, Dr. Michelle McQuaid-Dewers. Hi. Hi, everyone. Let's have a nice round of applause for our panel. All right. So that's the last you're going to hear from me. My dear esteemed colleagues, please take it away. Probably should have decided who was going to start, I know, right? Who's gonna, who's, it might be helpful. Do you want me to just like point at somebody? <laughs> uh, I nominate the veteran. Oh, the veteran. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yes. Well, I might as well. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I am a music professor, and so that's kind of obviously where I went when asked to think about this question, you know, who's underrepresented? And... I started to think about, well, how do we decide who is worthy of note? What is that process of sort of historicizing? And for popular music, one way, not the only way, and a a controversial way, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this is a place that sort of ensconces the most important 
by their definition, most important musicians of rock history. And so I started looking at who's in that Hall of Fame and what jumps out at me as a number of names that are not on that list and have not been inducted yet, and names that I think might surprise you. These are not necessarily unsung performers who we've never heard of. These are well-known, established artists who, if you compare their records to other artists who have done similar things, why aren't they in, why aren't the women in when some of their male counterparts are? And so that's the sort of question I'm operating from. So there's any number of female artists who could be in the Hall of Fame who are not yet, and a short list, somebody like Dolly Parton, uh, Melissa Etheridge, Pat Benatar, Janet Jackson, none of these women are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, but I wanted to focus on a few where I think there are really strong cases to be made, and we don't yet have them present in the Hall. And I thought, well, okay, how do we decide? How do these decisions get made? And so when I started looking at the women I picked out, I said, let's look at the sort of objective criteria. Because music's subjective, right? How do you figure this out? So I looked at objective criteria surrounding Ella Fitzgerald, who is someone who is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's been nicknamed the First Lady of Song. She is the Queen of Jazz. Her cultural impact, her name recognition is off the charts. People know this name, and yet she's not on, not in the Hall of Fame. She's won 14 Grammys. She's sold 40 million records over the course of her career. Um, she had crossover chart success, not just jazz. Um, and there are a number of other artists from her period who are lesser known who are in the Hall of Fame. Strange to me that she wasn't there. Um, another one that's strange to me who's not there yet is Bjork, um, who is famously, famously uh, adventurous, experimental, huge influence musically, risk-taking. She has made an impact in other areas as well. She is an actress for a limited period of time. She gave that up because it was a bad experience. Um, she has continued to evolve and experiment over this decades-long career. And it occurred to me that you could say all of these things about David Bowie. And David Bowie was nominated in something like his fourth or fifth year of eligibility. Bjork is eligible. She hasn't even been nominated. Um, and then in terms of commercial success, Stevie Nicks is in the Hall of Fame as a member of Fleetwood Mac, um, hugely influential, successful band, and she's not in as a solo, solo artist. And that seems strange when you look at the impact that she had as a solo artist. Eight studio albums, six of them are top 10 records on the Billboard charts. Her debut was a number one. She sold 10.5 million records in the US, 30 million worldwide. And Maybe you could say, okay, well, this is subjective and music is, you know, not, you know, we can't, uh, we can't codify these things so much by numbers. But then you look at somebody like Ringo Starr, who is obviously in as a member of the Beatles and then was inducted as a solo artist. And when you compare the records, it's a weaker argument for Ringo Starr <laughs> than it is for Stevie Nicks. Um, he has 19 studio albums, but it's diminishing returns in terms of both artistic quality and uh, the, the, the numbers that, that these things do. So these are the sort of three people that I've started thinking about from different angles, thinking, okay, these are people who you could make a strong case in one way or another for why they should be in the Hall of Fame. So then I started thinking about, well, how do these decisions get made and what's the process? And 
a numbers game shouldn't be the whole story, that music shouldn't be codified in this way completely. Um, so I started looking into it, and there is a nominating committee that decides behind closed doors who the nominees are going to be, and then there are hundreds of members, and I did all kinds of searches, and I could not find a definitive number about how many people vote for this. It's anywhere between 400 and 900 people, depending on who you, you ask. Um, and this nominating committee is supposed to be secret. The identities of these people have been leaked online, as one does. Um, and there are about 30 people on the current nominating committee. Um, five of them are women. The others are not. And so that right there is the beginning of this process where you have to, to wonder, OK, what's going on in this nominating committee that certain people aren't making a list? Then I came across. Uh, an explanation of the process from the president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, and Museum, um, Terry Stewart. He says, nomination and induction into the Hall of Fame is not about popularity, record sales, which label the group is on, or anything other than the process below. The love for the evaluation of and the impact of any artist are subjective. Questions to be answered by the nominators and the voters. Unlike baseball, football, basketball, or hockey, statistics are not relevant. So there goes the foundation of that argument for Stevie Nicks. Well, look at all these numbers. Okay, numbers aren't important according to this process. Then what is? The only formal criteria for the performance category is that an artist has to have their first record 25 years ago. Okay. That said, candidates are reviewed and discussed relative to their impact on this music we broadly call rock and roll. The innovation and influence of these artists is also critical. Gold records, number one hits, and million sellers are really not important standards for evaluation. So what this explanation does is remove objective criteria from the discussion. It admits, I guess to its credit, that it's subjective. And so now the question we have to ask is, when we have a completely subjective process, when and how can we acknowledge bias? And that's the sort of key to all of this, is that I think there needs to be some transparency. There needs to be room for these questions. Um, I am not here to say that people who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame already aren't already deserving. Uh, I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody. But the question for me is, why isn't this process more transparent? Why don't we know for sure who these nominators are? Why does it, is it this sort of secret website that has the secret identities of these people? You know, all these kinds of things. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the, the thing that, that, that may be the key to addressing some of these issues and addressing this question of why aren't some really well-known women, why haven't they received this particular honor? So that's, for the moment, all I have. Well, <laughs> I have something kind of similar. So yeah. my, my issue is with um, what, what I think is an intersectional problem, which is the neglect of women as artists in Hollywood, but also the neglect of screenwriters. Um, as artists in Hollywood. I'm not really sure how that came about, that the writer is less important than, <laughs> in, in most cases, than the director, the actor, and a whole bunch of other people um, associated with the film, but it, it created the, the eclipsing of two, two screenwriters who are women who created um, pop culture objects. They're definitely still with us, and those are Taya von Harbo, 
this early 20th century German screenwriter and Caroline Thompson, who was working in the 1980s to 2000s and is definitely still with us and working today. So who, who here has heard of Metropolis? Yeah. Okay. Directed by Fritz Lang, right? We know that? Okay. Do you, Theo von Harbo wrote the screenplay. She also wrote novelizations, so novels with the same story of that movie and several other movies that she made with Fritz Lang, who was very briefly uh, her husband as well as her collaborator, though the collaboration very much outlasted the romance and the marriage. Also, um, they got married on my birthday. Ah. Many, many, many years before my birthday, but I've always thought, okay, I love Metropolis, that's cool. Um, and I really love your version of, of Metropolis because it actually gives this story back to a woman artist. So it becomes kind of, you know, your collaboration with Lang and, um, and Von Harbo across, you know, across the decades. But, um, and I, I've read, you know, you can, you, can, you can read some bits of her treatment, you can read the novelization, um, so you can see how much of her creativity is in there. And it's this film that, I'm sorry, I think is even better than Metropolis in some ways. I hope there will be a score, a new score for it. Um, Frau im Mond, uh, The Woman in the Moon. Um, and it, it, this is amazing that it, um, Lang al also directed it, Von Harbo wrote it, and it's about astronauts who go to the moon from Weimar, Germany. So it was a uh, it was a space travel movie. Um, the effects are just unbelievable for for the late 1920s, and they had a real science advisor, a Romanian um, scientist named uh, Obert. I, I think that's that's how you pronounce his name. And um, you know, and he told them what walking in zero gravity in sorry in one six gravity ought to look like. Um, and that that was pretty incredible since they'd never seen the kind of images. Um, that we have seen, and, and it was her script writing that made that visual. And I don't want to ruin the ending, but there are three astronauts who go to the moon. It's a love, it's a love triangle. Everything's told from the point of view of the woman astronaut, and um, and she wears pants in and and a little tie in 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 um, the spaceship, and the same uniform when they go to the moon. It's great. She's very brave. She's very scientific. And then they get into a situation where only two of them can come back. Oh. And I will just leave it at that, oh. but it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and you know what? We ought to know about that. This, this movie was a science fiction first in a lot of ways, particularly to do with the realistic representation of, of interlunar travel. And we don't acknowledge that it's written by a woman. And now we have a situation where most science fiction films are not written by women. Mm -hmm. um, but but she began it. It's kind of like like with science fiction itself. There are people who tell you Frankenstein by Mary Shelley um, was not the beginning of science fiction because the word science fiction didn't exist. And then you could say, well, all right, Robinson Crusoe is not a novel because that entire concept, you know, was was only coming into existence then. And and you'd probably not that that wouldn't be incredibly persuasive. So I want Taya von Harbo back in, in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, if there is one, which leads me to Caroline Thompson. An even bigger problem of the screenwriter getting eclipsed because she's the screenwriter as well as because she's a woman. Um, so who, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Corpse Bride, who, what's the name you associate with those movies? Yeah, Tim Burton, he directed them. That's true, actually he, well, th th that's not entirely true of the, of the Nightmare Before Christmas, but he was associated with both of them. Edward Scissorhands, is it also Tim Burton? 
Okay, that's true. He directed it. The character was his idea. He drew a sketch. He went out to find a screenwriter to write it because he can't write his way out of a paper bag. We know that from his very <laughs> brief attempts to do that. Um, and uh, and he found Thompson. And she had she'd written one screenplay, which had been optioned but not produced, based on this her first novel. It's out of print now. It's very hard to get a copy of one of these. Um, it's a very creepy adaptation of Frankenstein that takes place in contemporary. Georgetown, Washington, D.C., in the 1980s, and there is this woman who is trying to get her creature back through, uh, through most of the novel. And quite a lot of this actually ended up in Edward Scissorhands, the film she wrote for him. If you watch this film, it will say story by Tim Burton and Caroline Thompson, and then screenplay by Caroline Thompson. She even got credit as an executive producer. Like, that's how much impact she had on that film. And then, you know, if you read the novel and then you, you look at Edward Scissorhands, the story is very different. It becomes more like Frankenstein. It begins in a world of snow with a story that's being told to a girl. That's how Frankenstein begins. There's that frame. Mm. And then we, we see a creature in the distance and then things get going. That's exactly what happens <laughs> in Frankenstein. Um, there's, there's some other kind of nice literary gothic echoes, like when um, Edward said, uh, the Avon lady says, what, what has happened to you? And Edward says, I'm not finished. That's a literal translation of the name Quasimodo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And there's some interesting feminism in there, too. I really like the scene where they go to the bank and they try to get a bank loan. And the Avon lady and Edward sit next to each other, and the bank man says, no, you can't have a loan because we don't have any record of you existing as an independent business person or as someone with a job. And of course not. She's, she's a housewife who sells Avon. When, you know, and her, her kids have just grown up, and she hasn't had time for that. And it's the 60s, and it's not what, pe what women in her neighborhood do. So now she can't get a loan to start an independent business. And we all know it's Edward's business. He's sitting next to her, but since she's kind of pushed him into everything she's done at this point, it's also a commentary on the difficulty of women in situations like hers, um, you know, getting into business like that. Um, I, another line that I think really sounds like 80s feminism is when um, her husband tells her that uh, she said that she knows that Edward can be successful in business because the neighbors have paid him in cookies and for his landscaping. And uh, her husband says, you can't buy the necessities of life with cookies. <laughs> and her daughter's boyfriend agrees. Um, mm. Except in their neighborhood, you can. There is a very active barter economy <laughs> between all of the women who are, uh, you know, who are left there during the day when the men go off in their it was literal matchbox cars that were being stop motion mm. um, animated. And you just see this film in completely different ways if you know that the screenwriter is a woman and if you know a little bit about what she was writing and also what she was reading, Frankenstein, um, before she wrote this. But then it's, you know, it's, it's almost 30 years old now. There was a lot of, of hoopla around its 25th birthday a few years ago, this film. It is known for having you know, more or less inaugurated the film career of Johnny Depp and for being a Tim Burton film. It's usually considered the best Tim Burton film mm -hmm. without a whole lot of explanation of why that is. And I don't think that's only because she's a woman. I think it is that we have this idea that, um, that, that the director is reaching towards being an auteur, mm -hmm. that directors are in, you know, they're, they're godlike, they're in control of everything happening around them. And, um, that is, that's true of some of them. Um, but it's definitely not true of all of them. Um, so I don't know. Someday I want to see a DVD box that says Edward Scissorhands, a Caroline. 
Thompson and Tim Burton film. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, it's hard to follow, um, follow these two up, but I will try. <clears throat> Um, so I'm over in uh, Democracy and Justice Studies and Political Science, so I spend a lot of time uh, this time in the semester uh, thinking about uh, civil rights and uh, women's rights. Uh, so in the spring, I teach Intro to Women's and Gender Studies and Law and Society, and so I'm thinking about uh, gender a lot throughout the whole semester, and not just during the semester, um, but, you know, when I'm not t teaching the course. Um, and then in Law and Society, we are getting started um, in our unit on um, civil rights. And so um, these two issues uh, became kind of the motivation um, for uh, a couple people uh, that I, um, I thought about and uh, thought that you should know about. Um, so first on the topic of uh, civil rights, and um, perhaps uh, knowing that I do teach courses in political science, uh, you're wondering, well, am I going to talk about some sort of, um, you know, political figure um, or uh, some civil rights lawyer? Um, and the answer is, is no, I'm not. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to take you, I'm, I'm going to take you back uh, to like the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a figure that we um, probably would not think of as a figure in the civil rights um, in civil rights movement. Not that there was a movement at this point in time, but I don't think we would necessarily think of this person as a civil rights activist. Um, but she did uh, do things that helped further uh, civil rights and um, the rights, um, you know, particularly those uh, for Black women, uh, and that is uh, Sarah Breedlove. Uh, she's also known as Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, so she was born uh, just uh, after the Civil War ended. Uh, so in 1867, uh, to, her parents were former slaves. Uh, she married uh, pretty early, as one does back in those days, um, but she became widowed uh, by the age of uh, 20. Uh, she had a, so she was a single mom, she had a two-year-old uh, child, and so she had to uh, go to work. Um, she worked in a laundry uh, she realized that she, like um, many black women, uh, struggled with hair loss um, because of the lack of indoor plumbing uh, and uh, harsh hair products. Uh, so she developed her own uh, line of hair care products uh, for African-Americans. Uh, and She branded them uh, Madam C.J. Walker um, because she thought that uh, would evoke Parisian uh, luxury and help boost uh, sales. Uh, so her products were a combination of scalp pr uh, preparation, application of lotions, uh, and the use of iron combs, uh, and that was known as the Walker uh, system. Uh, she distinguished her products uh, from the hair straighteners uh, sold from white cosmetic firms, uh, arguing that hers uh, were made uh, to meet the needs of uh, blacks. Uh, so there were a couple of things that were really uh, critical to her uh, success, uh, one was uh, one was marketing. Uh, so she was a pretty shrewd uh, mar marketer, um, very good at it. Um, and so her advertisements, um, and this was something that was a bit unique at the time. Um, her advertisements uh, featured um, blacks in a in a really positive uh, positive uh, light, as you can imagine. Late eighteen hundreds, early or yes, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Not a lot of um, positive uh, representation of uh, blacks. Uh, the other thing that she did um, was she had a really good sales strategy. Uh, so she set up a college uh, to train hair, cultural hair culturalists, 
And she became uh, one of the largest employers of black women. So she trained uh, 3,000 black women uh, to sell her uh, products, and they were really motivated to do so um, by uh, commission. Uh, the sales uh, were mostly uh, door-to-door, and... Um, it would be kind of a precursor uh, to the sales of uh, cosmetics door-to-door by, um, or I, I don't know if this happens door-to-door anymore, um, but uh, Mary Kay or uh, Avon. Uh, so Breedlove is uh, the first uh, self-made uh, woman millionaire. Um, so self-made. So she wasn't born uh, into money. She didn't uh, marry into money. Um, so it's a it's a uh, it's a it's truly a uh, rags to riches uh, story. And I should note she's not the first. Well, she is the first um, black woman self-made millionaire. But she is just the first um, self-made woman uh, millionaire on her. Uh, in her uh, on, on its own. Um, so as I said, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in my day job and uh, outside of my job uh, thinking about civil rights, and I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, women's rights as well. And um, uh, quick, uh, quick background. Um, I don't think anybody here knows this about me, um, but uh, I'm a runner. Uh, I've been running for a few years now. Uh, I run mostly uh, long distances. I actually am going out of town this weekend. I'm running a half marathon. Oh, nice. um, so I, <laughs> I'm running. Uh, I'm running the Lincoln. Pre- I guess I'll just keep on going. I'm running the Lincoln Presidential Half Marathon. Uh, so I'm going down to uh, Springfield, Illinois. And uh, the race directors say, you know, you you come run where Lincoln walked. Uh, so that's what I'm that's what I'm going to do. Although I imagine I'll do some walking as well. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, running. I wasn't always uh, a runner, um, but I did do. Um, I have been active in sports, I guess, um, more on than off throughout uh, my my lifetime, and. Um, Something that I, I learned um, pretty recently um, that I found to be pretty um, fascinating, and it's not, on some level, it's not really something that you kind of think about, but then on another level, it's like, oh, this makes like so much, so much sense. Um, but I came across recently um, uh, an article about uh, the inventor of uh, sports bras. Uh, so sports bras uh, were invented uh, by Lisa Lindell uh, the summer of 1977. Um, so this was the height of the women's movement. Um, but this is also a time when we were undergoing what's considered kind of the first running craze in the United uh, States. Uh, so women um, and men, but women in the 1970s um, took up, uh, were, were started taking up running. Um, they were also taking up other forms of uh, exercise. So the so 1970s, uh, we've got the women's movement. Uh, Title IX was passed in 1972. Uh, this uh, prohibited gender discrimination in education. Title IX went a long way uh, towards creating uh, opportunities uh, for women in uh, sports, uh, among other things. It did other things, but that was kind of the primary, um, what it's primarily credited um, for doing. Um, so 
women were becoming um, more athletic, uh, were becoming more athletic in the uh, 1970s. And maybe on some level, it seems kind of odd to you um, that it took so long. Um, but uh, athletics were always, I mean, it's, a, it's, what, it's what men did. It wasn't what uh, women did um, participating in, in athletics was a masculine uh, pursuit. If you, if you did it and you were a woman, you were unfeminine, you were uh, manly. Uh, in fact, uh, we don't have to go too much further before uh, the 1970s to a time where uh, women were really discouraged uh, from running uh, long distances. Uh, you're going to think that I'm making this up. I promise you I'm not making this <laughs> up. Uh, but it was believed uh, that if women if women ran, all that jostling around um, would, would make their uteruses um, fall out. Um, so I tr trust me, I'm not making uh, that up. Um, so we know that's not uh, the case. But my point being is that um, you don't, you, we don't have to go very far back to when women were discouraged um, from participating in sports. So back to 1977 and Lisa, Lisa Lindell. Uh, she was a graduate student at the University of Vermont. Uh, like a lot of women at this time, uh, she decides to, to hop on uh, the running craze train and take up uh, running. <clears throat> Uh, and so uh, she ran into a problem. Um, she ran into a problem that a lot of women uh, ran into. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she struggled to find, um, she, she needed something, she needed a sports bra. Um, although at that time, she wouldn't have known to call it a sports bra. Um, but uh, women who first took up running in the 1970s, um, they were really small-breasted. Uh, but other women who weren't so small-breasted wanted to take up running, but they wanted to uh, take up other uh, sports. But um, not having a proper bra really held uh, them back. Um, just a side note, of course, we had regular bras. Uh, and a side note, um, those were invented in 1914 by Mary Phelps Jacobs. Um, but uh, it just uh, it didn't work uh, to to do any sort of sports in uh, regular um, regular bras. They were not meant for that, obviously. Uh, so Lindell worked with a friend uh, who sewed costumes, and then her friend's assistant uh, assistant, and they came up with a prototype for a sports bra. Uh, Lindell wrote up a business plan, and then she sold her sports bras. She called them jog bras uh, in sporting goods uh, stores. Um, so sports bras, um, this thing that are these things that are so commonplace these days, probably things that we don't really quite, you know, we don't really like think about them. Um, we take them for uh, granted, um, but they are relatively uh, new. Um, but they were really critical uh, and went a very, very long way um, toward helping women uh, participate in, uh, in uh, sports. So they really made um, athletics possible uh, for women. Um, Title IX certainly, um, certainly helps, right, um, clearing kind of the legal obstacles, um, but uh, sports bras um, truly helping women uh, participate in sports. Um, they are dubbed a, quote, revolutionary piece of women's undergrad. Garments. Uh, and today, sports bras are a seven million, uh, seven, excuse me, seven billion dollar uh, industry worldwide. They're relatively new. They're about 40 years old, uh, and research and innovation uh, continues uh, to this uh, to this day. So, thank you. Right. So, have we fixed everything? Totally. 
<laughs> That's the thing, you know? I mean, we can all point to all of these different examples, um, but the question of what we do about it is the thing that I think a lot of us struggle with. And, um, and I, I come to this with more questions than answers about how this, you know, how to move forward, um, you know, and, and, and you, you, what, what I personally, you know, worry about and think about is that there is a tendency sometimes in some circles to shut down the voices who are saying, hey, you have forgotten about these aspects of society, you have forgotten about these people, um, and you, you, you start to feel like maybe you have to pick your battles really carefully because if you say too much, then, then it's, it, it's easier to tune you out, you know what I mean? Um, and so I, this, is, this is the kind of thing I'm kind of thinking about a lot lately, um, especially in light of all kinds of recent events that I think everyone knows what I'm talking about, you know, and, and we're in a moment where more people are asking more questions, but I worry that if we don't figure out productive ways to have hard conversations, that the moment will pass and mm. nothing will change. Um, I don't know where to go from that statement, <laughs> um, except to say that, 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 that this, is where, this is where I get stuck, because it's pretty easy to go through the list of people who are left out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's pretty easy to look through you know, lists of people who have been nominated for Best Screenplay Oscars and, and Best Director Oscars and who hasn't been, more notably, right? <clears throat> and it's easy to point out all of these things, and, 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 and here's a, a list of injustices, but, you know, what do we do about it? Well, one thing that we can do, I'm, I'm not really sure about music or business, I don't know anything about that, but one thing <laughs> that we can do about, about writing um, has to do with who is producing the writing. Um, I think it's very telling the producer of several of Caroline Thompson's films was a woman, um, I've heard this woman give a speech about her career, and the thing, I took a lot of things away from that speech. She's an absolutely brilliant um, producer and, and uh, aggregator of artists. And, but the, the one thing that was, that was very haunting about what this woman said is she said that when she started in Hollywood, th there are stories about things like a woman producer who wanted a completion bond, the um, insurance that you have to get to, so that if something dreadful happens and you can't finish your film, um, you don't just, you know, that doesn't destroy your production company. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, stories about there's a woman and she needed to get a completion bond and she couldn't get one until she had a co-producer who was a man. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's that literal these days, but it, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, uh, th there is, a, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to have studied screenwriting. It's not something I want to do. I don't ever want to uh, moved to LA, for instance, which seems to be a requirement. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think it was unacceptable that almost every screenplay we read was by a man. All the ones that were considered greats were by men. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the men was Roman Polanski, which is yeah. fine. <laughs> well, I, I teach Byron, so I shouldn't talk, you know. But um, And then any attempt to discuss the ethics of not his life, but the representation of women in that film was met with a, oh, you don't like Roman Polanski because feminist, yada, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so I think we need, we, need to, we need to put money into women producers. We need to trust them the way we trust men producers. Um, we need to teach 
screenwriting as part of filmmaking, we need to teach women's women screenwriters, all of that is necessary. One thing I think is actually working effectively is something that I know at least one person in the audience knows about, which is the Bechdel test. Oh, yeah. We all know what the Bechdel test is, right. right? Okay. So, and there have been some other versions of the Bechdel test that measure representation of, of, of minorities as well. Um, but uh, it's, it's very interesting the way that films written by women um, do generally on the Bechdel test. Um, Edward Scissorhands is a weird example because there's a character, a main character whose major characteristic is that he doesn't say very much. Mm. Thompson has said once that she could have put all of his lines on an index card. I, mm. I totally believe that. Um, there is a different test online that measures the percentage of speech in a film by women versus speech in a film mm. by men. I know we can't do that with Harbo because it was a, you know, the, the way that film was made was silent. But, <laughs> sure. um, but with Thompson, you can do that. And um, I'm only continuing to talk about this one film because I'm not sure if anybody else in the room knows any others that she wrote by herself. Um, but uh, it's, it's 67 to 33 in favor of women, the women characters, that film. And for the most part, they're the ensemble. I, I, th I think we should look at more films written by women, whether or not they're directed by, by women, and say, okay, is that saying something about the film's ability to represent a community of women? And if that's true, then we really need to support these writers, because that way we get a better picture of all of humanity. I like it. You just fixed film. <laughs> no, they're not going to listen to me. Well, I was taking this course. Yeah. yeah. But you know, something occurred to me while you were talking, and, and that yeah. is, you mentioned a little while ago the, the whole idea mm -hmm. of the director as the auteur and the, mm -hmm. the sort of master of the universe and all mm -hmm. that stuff. And that, that whole thing is such a myth because mm -hmm. film just by the nature of really how it's put cool. together. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of the most collaborative things out there because yeah. you you know you can't ha you can't physically or mentally do all of the things necessary to make a film yeah. as one sole person, you yeah. know, unless you're doing, you know, I mean, I guess well, you could Edward lock yourself could, but in that didn't work very well. well yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you could lock yourself in a room and, you know, make yeah. some computer animation maybe, you know, but yeah. but but it's such a it's an inherently collaborative process mm -hmm. and to deny that is to then deny the roles of everybody but the director. Absolutely. And so if we could maybe bust that myth that, mm -hmm. well, the director is, you know, mm -hmm. absolutely the top of the chain, no questions asked, then maybe there's more room for acknowledging the roles of other people in, in, yeah. in the film and, and we go from there. I don't know. I think you're right about that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but just to kind of tie in, I think, to what you were saying about um, one of the things that you were saying um, about just better, better representation. And I think um, kind of speaking to the importance of diversifying um, not just the film industry, um, but pretty much any uh, any industry and not to say that. Um, you know, women or any sort of, you know, or a racial minority or a sexual minority, certainly not to, you know, paint each uh, minority group with these, you know, broad brushstrokes mm -hmm. like you all are like this or you're all like this, right? Certainly not. Um, but just uh, the, the, the more diversity you have and using mm -hmm. even diversity very broadly, the, the, you know, different people in any sort of industry is probably going to automatically uh, diversify uh, that, that, uh, that industry. And yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's, that's part of what I was trying to reach for about mm -hmm. intersectionality, that um, 
a lot of the injustice is not simply because the person who's being neglected is is a woman. It's that there are other characteristics that are subjected to neglect too. So, yeah. so something I was thinking about um, when I received uh, when I received the email about um, who's going to be on the panel and kind of this what some idea of what everybody was going to talk about. And um, Michelle, you were going to talk about um, make your case for who should be in in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And so something that I was just um, thinking about and kind of more broadly this topic of um, why, like, why are women's accomplishments, you know, over overlooked? Um, why do we have, you know, kind of this hard time kind of coming mm -hmm. up with, um, you know, women doing amazing things. And I think that something that we can all do, um, mm -hmm. every single one of us, is um, really think critically um, about ourselves. And, um, you know, when we're, when we're asked, because even I was, I was not, not that I know a lot about music, but I was, I was like, huh. Huh, I don't know. I can't think. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but I think um, being re really critical of ourselves and, um, you know, calling ourselves out, um, you know, and, you know, I think it's kind of easy and we don't even realize we're doing this, um, myself included, but are we just kind of automatically devaluing, de or val you know, devaluing um, what women are doing? Do we mm -hmm. automatically, when we think about, you know, the great, um, great directors or the great singers or um, whatnot, are we just, are our minds automatically going um, towards men? And, um, you know, just being really critical to not uh, of ourselves and not getting not getting lazy, I suppose. Yeah, and and that it kind of goes back to the way I approach this whole thing, which is you know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or any other you know or the Oscars or like any mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. you know award granting institution, right? Yeah. That's all about historicization. That's about canonization, right? And that's a process that we maybe don't question enough and we don't think critically enough about. Mm -hmm. I teach both pop music history and Western classical music history. And of course, in both cases, the canonized figures are men. And so when I look at curriculum, I find myself noticing, of course, that there aren't as many women to talk yeah. about if we accept the canon as it is. Yeah. And then I find myself trying to figure out, well, how do you include more voices without it coming off as tokenism mm -hmm. without people, uh, without leaving out legitimate figures who are in the canon and should be in the canon, you know, it, 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 when you, so yeah, you have to think really critically about that and it's really tricky <laughs> and I don't have yeah. a perfect answer for that by that, any though. means. I think if you look at the canon, at least in literature, it has changed in really positive ways. So mm -hmm. One, one success story um, is is the teaching of Frankenstein. This year is the 200th anniversary of the first publication of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's novel Frankenstein, 18, 1818. It was published anonymously for a variety of reasons, not all of which had to do with gender. Um, it was published anonymously again, but people basically knew who she was in... Um, in 1831, and just by that point, she'd been able to put a preface on it that says, people have been asking my publisher how I came, how I, then a young girl, came up with the idea for this novel. So by the time, you know, she writes that, that third edition, um, 
the, there is another one where not much changed in the 1820s, um, preface, the public knows that it's written by a woman and they have some guesses about who the woman is and they're very excited about this idea um, and they want to know more. And not, mm -hmm. not a whole lot has changed socially between 1818 and 1831. Certainly not like the differences between 1818 and now or even the differences between uh, Thompson in the early 1990s is what she looked like then um, and now. Um, but there's a, a program called Frankenreads where where everybody's around the world is going to read Frankenstein out loud, kind of like Bloomsday um, this year. Uh, hopefully we're going to have a Frankenreads here on this campus. Um, in the fall, it's one of the most frequently taught novels from the Romantic period. It's it's taught in an awful lot of, not just literature courses, but but courses on stuff like bioethics. You know, um, and I have a book that was published in the in the 1910s from a correspondence course series, kind of like their their equivalent of the internet course, um, about the Godwin Shelley circle. Godwin in that title is her father, and Shelley is her husband. Um, and they're amazing writers too, and I love them. Um, but it, it mentions her once, and only as the daughter and wife, and it doesn't even mention Frankenstein. So <sighs> we we have come a really long way since 1818, since 1831, um, since 1910. And what, what I would say to do, because I teach a course on women in literature and I, I try not to make it tokenism, is you make a list of the books that you really like mm -hmm. and you t or, or the movies you really like or the, the singers you really like, um, and you teach those. Yeah. And there's always going to be more. And there are lots more women I like that I don't have time to teach and lots more men that, um, that I don't have time to teach. But I think like if, we're, if, we, if we know that we're promoting something because it's good, you know, that, that, is, go that is going to come through, at least on, on a small level. Sure. I don't know if that helps. Like, so if there's something in the canon and it's not good and you don't like it, throw it out. Make your own canon. Make your own. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Well, I do that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Mm. So now we fixed everything, right? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, mm -hmm. I hope we're at a moment where we are asking more questions. And I mm -hmm. want to be part of that moment. And I, I, I want to have these conversations. And that's why I'm doing mm -hmm. this. And I, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll just come out and say, like, there, there, may, there was a time, maybe not all that long ago, where I would have been a little bit more reluctant to do a panel like this. Oh. And only be, and it's, and it's, this is just for my own, you know, hang ups about trying to make it, you know, in, in my career, in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I for a long time believed that if I acted as if sexism couldn't possibly get in my way, then that would manifest itself as truth. Mm -hmm. And that uh, I'm just not going to make an issue of it, mm -hmm. and I'm just going to you know do my thing, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability, yep. and that you know there. a true meritocracy will will spring forth, you know, yeah. and you know, in, in, in several ways that's worked for me pretty well. But it's pretty clear again because of all kinds of recent conversations yeah. we're having about all kinds of things that that in itself can't be enough, and that. Maybe there have been times when I haven't talked about things that I've seen or things that I've experienced in the service of trying to keep some kind of peace, mm. you know, and not, not raise, you know, too many issues or make people say, oh, well, she's, you know, she's not cool, <laughs> you know, and all that, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and so I, it, it's so in light of, of 
the sort of, I think, cultural shift that we are beginning to experience, at least I hope we are. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I've been making more of a deliberate effort to talk about these things a little bit more openly, and I appreciate the opportunity to do that here today. So, you know, uh, and I hope that, you know, just by having these, just by, by pointing some of these things out, that we can shine some light on things and, and that these the, the whole thing can become more transparent over time. So, so something you said um, just reminded me of because I can see kind of how you know how you appro- how you approach things. Um, maybe it's also an effort to not draw attention to the fact that you're a woman. But something that you said kind of at the end, um, just uh, I forgot how you worded it. Not wanting, kind of want to keep the peace. Keep the peace. Yeah. Keep the peace. Yeah. Um, so it just kind of reminds me. I, I don't think in any of our examples. Um, uh, any of our figures, uh, we talked, uh, I don't think that they were kind of uh, victim to this, although I don't uh, prefer to. Herbo was. But, oh, yeah. oh, hey, oh, okay. well, wait, where, I'm, where okay. I'm going with this. Oh, sorry. Um, okay. All right. I, I don't think any of our, okay. victi- or our um, figures were victims okay. of, um, like, women's ideas being um, taken credit or men taking credit for any of these women's accomplishments. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, like, oh, 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 mm-hmm. oh, oh, like this, okay. like a woman invented it. And then a man swoops in and is like, no, just kidding. I did. <laughs> right. So I don't think um, we really um, had. And there are certainly examples where that has happened. Um, but I was just um, thinking about how. Um, we are certainly um, kind of in this cultural cultural shift, um, this moment, this movement. I'm not sure what we want to call it. Uh, <laughs> we don't have to label it, right? Um, but I think we should um, think about um, thinking about you know why have women's accomplishments um, gone over uh, overlooked? And I was thinking about like how we are still. Um, socialized these days and how we are still socializing girls and boys, um, socializing girls to keep the peace, Mm -hmm. uh, don't rock the boat, be nice, be polite. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we actually have social science research uh, demonstrating that in uh, social settings, in business meetings, for example, uh, where we have mixed genders, um, men um, men tend to speak over women. Um, men tend to um, interrupt women like way more freq- uh, frequently than it goes the other way around. Um, or and then there's just this tendency to not really hear and listen to what women are saying. Like we have actual social science research. This isn't a hunch. This isn't anecdotal. Like we have the data um, where a woman in a meeting um, will say something and then it'll just be ah we're moving. Moving on, moving on. Um, and in that same meeting, uh, then a man will bring it up, um, say identically or virtually what the woman has already been said. And then everybody's like, oh, what a brilliant idea. And it's like, <laughs> come on, come on here. Um, so, uh, and then you might be like, well, then why doesn't a woman say, hey, I just said that, come on. Well, going back to uh, how we still socialize, um, we socialize uh, girls and women, you know? Be polite. Be nice. Don't be a bitch. Oh, sorry. Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) (laughs) I think also, like, the women who do say, hey, I said that, Mm -hmm. um, they don't last in in many industries Mm -hmm. very long because Mm -hmm. people think they are bitches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that fear of being labeled. Is something that I, I think a lot of a lot of women experience, and that colors 
a lot of day-to-day decisions about what you choose to speak up about and what you choose not to. And, and that, that impulse, again, to sort of, well, I'm going to really be careful and pick my battles here, you know, uh, because you don't want to be labeled that way. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you, you, maybe you downplay an achievement because you don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable and because it's not polite to take pride and, you know, all, all of these kinds that of things. Too, yeah. Right? You know, yeah. um, so it, it, it's it it's tricky to navigate and it's subtle and sometimes I think women don't even realize mm-hmm. that they're that that's why some of those choices are being made you know because it's 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 happening subconsciously yeah so I don't know um and, and then, you know, I, there's a little detail about the Ringo Starr induction in the Hall of Fame that I, I didn't mention, and, and now it feels really relevant. Um, Ringo Starr, you know, inducted as a member of the Beatles, inducted then later as a solo artist, and, you know, maybe the, the, it, there was a sense in a lot of the critics' communities, it's like, well, okay, this is more like collecting the set. This isn't really <laughs> because Ringo Starr is, you know, that great of a solo artist. And Ringo Starr said that Paul McCartney realized that Ringo wasn't in the Hall of Fame. And this is a quote from Ringo Starr. He says, Paul McCartney talked to somebody. They're going to put me in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's going to give me away like I'm the bride and I will accept. And so this idea that, like, Paul McCartney made this decision and said, well, this is somebody I'm going to support. And he advocated for Ringo Starr, probably to that super secret nominating committee. (laughs) It's like, guys, you got to get him on the ballot, right? Um, And, you know, Maybe it takes that kind of advocacy mm-hmm. to get overlooked women to that next mm-hmm. level. Um, and I, I don't, you know, we don't all know Paul McCartney, so we, we're going to have to find our own <laughs> advocate. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> I should not have presumed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you know, did, did Paul McCartney know Stevie Nicks per- personally? I don't know that. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I would wonder, like, I, I assume that he's met at least some female rockers yeah. of that stature. Okay. And mm. he hasn't thought to nominate them, and they're a lot more autonomous okay. than Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I here's what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to make a list, and we're going to yes. find Paul McCartney, and we're yes. going to present him with our list we're of gonna, demands. We'll, we'll, tweet, <laughs> okay. we'll tweet him. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, that's really what, I mean, that kind of confrontation is exactly the sort of thing that has to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for supporting the Parkland kids, Paul. He did that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, do, we, do we have any questions from the audience? Okay. All right. So how do you guys see um, women's representation changing in about 50 years? Oh, boy. Hmm. I had two immediate thoughts. Um, One is that I hope we don't have to have a panel like this to point out all kinds of overlooked women in 50 years. And then it... Okay, I might say a bad word. Is that okay? 
All right. Um, so um, I, I remember I've seen variations of this sign at various protest marches that have you know, photos of protest marches that have happened recently. Um, and, and it's usually an older woman holding up the sign. And she's the sign says something to the effect of I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit. Right? And we've seen that. Right. You know, I hope that we're in a situation in 50 years where it's no longer something that we have to draw special attention to that over time these conversations that we're having now are just become less and less necessary. Um, that's my, what I hope. Uh, will we get there? I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's what I hope for. Oh, wait, can I? Um, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, I'm very optimistic um, for, you know, the next 50 and years and and uh, way beyond. I mean, you know, the women's movement wasn't terribly long ago, and I know that you know you're like, oh my gosh, the '60s and '70s that was that was ages ago. And I mean, it's hard for me not to think the same thing. I mean, it was before my lifetime. Um, but if we think about how uh, kind of these legal obstacles weren't lifted uh, for women until the '60s and '70s, and uh, creating more opportunities for women in employment and uh, in education, and so um, you know it's it's only it's only going to get only going to get better. Um, so the barriers have been lifted for like forty years. I mean, I think culture is changing too, albeit more slowly. <laughs> um, but right now we're kind of in this um, in this moment where. Um, more attention is being drawn to kind of the cultural barriers uh, keeping uh, women back. Um, so the Me Too movement has been um, really uh, amazing for kind of creating solidarity, raising awareness to what goes on in workplaces um, that uh, holds uh, holds women uh, back. So uh, I'm very optimistic. Okay, I will be honest. I'm not optimistic because oh. I don't believe that history is progressive. Sometimes things go forward and then they go backwards. And sometimes things go forward a lot and then they suddenly go backwards because that's backlash, right? So I think we actually, we might be seeing some backlash right now. Um, just one example is that um, I do not remember the, the pink equals girls color thing happening when I was a kid, right? And kids today, you know, everything in, in the store that's for girls is, is color-coded pink. Um, maybe a little bit of it was in the 70s, but certainly not everything. Um, so, uh, and, um, and there, there have been some, some reversals politically um, as well. So I, I don't know what's going to happen in 50 years. Maybe things will be a whole lot better and maybe they, they will be in another, another state of backlash. When looking at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, did you notice a large like racial disparity between the women inductees? Mm. Um, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I would have to really take another look at the full list. So I'm, I can't like, give you percentages off the top of my head or anything like that. Um, I, I will say that, um, the earliest inductees are largely African Americans, both men and, and, you know, primarily men, uh, or really all men at the beginning. And so, so there, there has been more acknowledgement of race than there has been of gender. Um, and it's worth pointing out that the first woman inducted was Aretha Franklin. And so that is, you know, an, an acknowledgement of, of both gender and race. Um, a couple of other, um, 
guess the, the another woman that who comes to mind is a lesser known figure, um, Laverne Baker, who was an R and B singer in the fifties and sixties. Uh, we have two women in the upcoming class who will be inducted on April 14th of this year. One is Nina Simone, uh, and the other is, uh, oh gosh, I have forgotten. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's, but, but an, another African American woman will be also inducted, um, at, at, in this upcoming class. And so there, there is, sometimes acknowledgement of race as well as gender, but there is an imbalance um, and it's, uh, it, it is something that has to be part of the conversation as well, absolutely. So uh, women, girls at young ages, and just as they're growing up through teenagers, they are told a lot that they have to be asked by men, usually in prom proposals and to be proposed. Do you think this affects women as they grow up into more prominent roles in societies that they have to wait for men to lead them on and do things for them? Yes. <laughs> and how do you think Sorry. this could, how do you think we could break this idea? Well, more women could make proposals. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm flashing back so hard to high school right now, and <laughs> some of it's nostalgia, and some of it is pain. <laughs> so, um, I think I think that's a great question, and speaking to how um, some of these practices that we think are, don't mean anything. I mean, in the sense that, like, they don't mean anything in terms, they don't do harm, right? Or they don't. Um, they're just, they're, they're frivolous. They're innocuous. It's no big deal. You know, like, calm down. Who cares, right? Um, but I think you're speaking to how maybe we should kind of think critically of some of these um, practices. And I'll kind of carry yours, carry your question a little bit further. So thinking about how um, proposals, women are, girls and women are taught to be passive and wait. Um, but also, um, women are, we still maintain this tradition where when women get married, um, some like 90%, 95% of women, um, they take their husband's name. Um, so they're literally subordinating their identity um, to their husbands. And so a lot of people, um, you know, get all you know upset with me. They're like, oh, calm down, Chris. It's not a big deal. It's tradition, what have you. Um, but I would argue that these so seemingly harmless, fun traditions actually really do matter. They have I, I big implications. Too. I mean, look at what, what McCartney and Starr said with that metaphor about mm -hmm. the bride needing mm -hmm. to be, you know, chosen to be <laughs> in the Hall of oh, Fame. Yeah. If I can try to tie everything together, Amy Ray sure. of the Indigo Girls, who does have a solo career, has a wonderful st song that's called Lucy Stoners, and it's about Lucy Stoner, who was, she, uh, she actually, um, she sued to be able to keep, she sued the U.S. government to be able to keep oh. her, I'm not going to call it a maiden name, her, to keep her name, Given name when she got married. She's like, I'm in love, I'm getting married, but I want to keep my name because I'm, I'm an autonomous, autonomous person. And there is so much anger against her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was in the, it was either the late 19th or early 20th century. I didn't think we'd talking about, be talking about this, so I didn't um, <laughs> look it up. But um, Amy Ray's song about her is, is just, it's, it's an ode and it's an, it's an angry rock song. It's wonderful. Okay. You know, okay. but, but just listening to, I, I heard her sing it in, in concert once. Um, Amy Ray was singing this, this song in concert. 
And, and there's so much energy in the audience. It was like every woman, well, maybe, I don't know if it's every woman in the audience. I hope it's every woman in the audience. It's like, <laughs> yes, of course, I'm a Lucy Stoner too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have to go find that song now. That's great. <laughs> hmm. I'm not going to sing it because some of the lyrics would get bleeped. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you all so very Thanks. much. Let's give a round of applause for our panelists. Okay. Wonderful job. Thanks again to Rebecca Nesbitt. Thanks again to Chris Coulter. And thanks again to Michelle McQuaid Dewurst. We're so thankful that you came here and shared your experiences and some really interesting stories. So like I said, hit, hit up Google, hit, hit up Wikipedia, hit up Spotify, um, and uh, check out some of these uh, amazing women's work. Um, that'll do it for this episode of Serious Fun. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks for some great questions. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.